We don't want to fail to uh, announce in the arrival of Jace Daniel Peterson to uh, Matthew and Gabby, our children's director. And we are delighted. I was born yesterday. Uh, I'm not going to give you all of the particulars. Closer to nine pounds than to eight. And uh, my wife knows what that's like to even get past the nine pound uh, with one of ours. So, uh, uh, He's doing great. Uh, Gabby is a little worn out and is going to be in the hospital for uh, a couple of days after and uh, need some rest uh, the next few weeks, but uh, she's doing fine and just needs to heal up and rest up uh, a bit. So we give thanks and uh, she's such a delight uh, to all of us on the staff and I know to so many of you. Uh, I asked those that were checking in the kids this morning, you know, why isn't Gabby here? I mean, she's such a hard worker and... Uh, I just was testing to make sure they'd all gotten the word. Uh, <laughs> speaking of the word, let's move uh, there. First Peter, let's pray. Father, you have come to us in the ultimate way and the eternal Son taking on flesh. But you've also come to us in your inspired, wonderful word. We thank you for Peter the Apostle. We ask that you would open his words, your word, to us this morning. And that you would bless us that we might bless others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen you've been with us, you know that we're calling this series in 1 Peter, The True Grace of God, which is how Peter summarizes his message uh, at the end of chapter 5. It's not just grace in some general way, it's a grace with content that all through the five chapters uh, is spelled out for us again and again. And this morning in chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, uh, and trying to summarize this, uh, I gave it the title, Lean on and line up with God's honored cornerstone. We lean on, we lean into Jesus with everything we are as we see more and more of who he is. Uh, but we also line up with him as the cornerstone. We'll be explaining that along the way. And he is God's honored cornerstone. Let me read these verses, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. This is the word of God 
Thanks be to God. Living stones. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Uh, Make choices bringing honor to God. Uh, We may as well say it right up front. You know, we can think about stones fitting together into a building, uh, but it kind of rattles the mind a little bit when you think about stones that are in the walls of a building moving, (laughs) Uh, being reshaped in certain kinds of ways. It switches the metaphor a little bit to what's going on in the building, what this building is for, what this living building of people. Um, You know, there's a a real sense in which uh, the temple of God walked into this building this morning. That's living stones. Uh, The temple is not a building, it's a people in the ultimate sense. Uh, and they are living, and, and how they line up with the living cornerstone of the building uh, is everything. I was going to share this later, but let me say it now because I think it will help. Uh, I had the privilege in 1978 of spending uh, nine and a half weeks in Israel doing all kinds of things, archaeology, uh, geography, biblical studies, uh, just uh, an incredible time. We were up in Cana, uh, one of the two most likely sites of Cana in Galilee where the wedding that Jesus uh, worked with the water and the wine was. Uh, and there was a building that's probably not more than a few hundred years old. It's not biblical period, but an abandoned building, rectangular. And we looked over at it, uh, and the cornerstone on the most prominent corner facing uh, what had long been the pathway or the road was a child's coffin that obviously had been uh, long removed from that task it was built for, or perhaps never used for it. But the important thing about that is why. Because a great deal of work had been made in making that coffin to have the rectangle have 90-degree corners. And so when it was set as the cornerstone, the stone on the corner, the builders then could draw the lines out for the sides of the building and keep them straight by lining them up with that cornerstone. And that's one aspect. There are other things that are talked about architecturally. Uh, Some of you might find that interesting. I'm just not finding it really important, uh, given the really important things we have to say. But Jesus is the cornerstone in the sense uh, that he shapes everything. Every other stone, and we are the living stones, that is put into the building, has uniquenesses, but it's got to line up with the way that he is a living stone and flow out from him. So as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, verses 4 and 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. How you do what you do. The priesthood aspect, Peter points out, of who we are, Offering not just any kinds of sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices. We talked about spiritual life versus earthly life. Spiritual meat and spiritual milk that feeds us according to the new way of the Spirit. That we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we bring honor to God, acknowledging and delighting in the honor God has given the eternal Son incarnate in which honor all who trust him are given a share. We bring honor, delighting in Christ, delighting in finding ways to tell others of God's amazing mercy and grace to us. Uh, The theme, uh, and 
team put into the service so many other references so we can move fast on some of them but uh, Acts 4 11 and 12 uh, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders the apostles preaching about Jesus to their fellow Jews rejected by you the builders and and you the priests the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who should have been sure things were lining up with, God, with God's Word, missed it. And so Peter says, And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I put on your outline uh, a lot of verses. We're not going to read them all, but in the life groups and on your own study, uh, I wanted you to have some places to go if you want to dig a little bit deeper. One of them, uh, Mark 12, uh, says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus preaches this message about himself. Ephesians 2.20, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So everything in the apostolic teaching lines up with the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Psalm 118, we touched on it in the service. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. Isaiah 8:14, and He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So not only is this a happy message in which we delight, uh, there is a warning that goes back to what the prophets prophesied. And that's why the writer of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 14, says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And we have these passages of 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2 that I mentioned, the pure spiritual milk. And in Galatians 6, 1, uh, Paul writes, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you be tempted. By the way, uh, that admonition, notice, doesn't say, when anyone's caught in a really big sin, you who are spiritual, correct him. It says any trespass. And who are those who are spiritual? They are those who drink the milk of fellowship, of the teaching of the Word, of mutual correction, who know they don't have in themselves what they need, so they're humble because they know they are such a mess, and that we all have to be leaning on the cornerstone and lined up with Him, so instead of correcting out of their own mind and tendencies, with gentleness they go to the brother or the sister that's starting to evaluate by the world's standards instead of the standards of the gospel. They go gently. Colossians 3.16, let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual thongs, songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
there's been a lot written about spiritual songs. I'm going to make it real simple for you today. There are songs that feed you the spiritual milk. There are songs that focus you in the right direction. Uh, they're not in the book of Psalms. Uh, they're not necessarily in the hymns, but what they must do is not bring a worldly perspective, but a perspective that is according to the new age of the Spirit in Christ. They must build up the church in a new way. You've had a great example of that in this worship service. Thank you, Stephen and the team. I mean, everything in the service has been pointing to these foundational things that we're trying to understand. And there's a parallel in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What does the Spirit of God do? As He fills us, He equips us to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The kind of songs that don't just make us feel good about ourselves, but get us really excited about Jesus and remind us that in Jesus, we're becoming like Jesus so we can get excited about ourselves. We're not stuck. Uh, You know, God loved us uh, the way we were, but as somebody said wisely, He didn't love us to leave us the way we are in the past. He conforms us to the image of Christ, the new spiritual way. And we do that in community, not only as individuals. We bring together spiritual sacrifices, the way of Jesus, praise to God. Praises which flow both from what's been shown us that causes us to lean on Christ and praises that urge us because of what God has done and how he's treated us. As God's cornerstone, we treat others that way. As living stones, Christ is To us, the living stone, and he, what did he call himself? I am the way and the truth and the life. He's not only the truth, but he's the way. And the way he deals with people, the way he deals with those who mistreat him, is the way for us. And we'll see a lot in the future paragraphs of Peter right down that line. And he's caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ and therefore, we studied it a couple of weeks ago, 1 Peter 1.17, and if you call on him as father, the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing you were ransomed, I'm collapsing it, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, not things of this world and what we value in this world, but with the precious blood of Christ who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, who through God's work in him are believers in God. So our faith and our hope are in God who's done such things. You know, Scripture is amazing if you've been uh, paying close attention to Peter's words. Uh, It it takes words that we usually don't put together and puts them together. Uh, In these early chapters of Peter, we see a lot of emphasis on hope, an imperishable hope that is ours. And yet we've just been talking about the fact that we are to fear God as we walk because we see how incredibly awesome is he is and that one of my favorite phrases about the gospel is that it allows us to fear God without being afraid but the scripture tells us never stop fearing God like God's grace is so simple that you know now I'm free and I can do whatever I want not if I have a new heart that longs to have my father be pleased with me I don't earn his love by anything I do, but I understand 
that the cornerstone is a stone of judgment for the world as well as a stone of blessing to me. And if I love my neighbors, I've got to be concerned about how they're responding to the cornerstone. And we'll come a little more to that. Point two, spiritual exile. That's where they are. Remember how they are addressed in the readers, uh, Peter's readers in the early part of chapter one. They're spiritual exiles. And spiritual exile is shaped by conflicts and their conflicts that involve shame and honor. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Can't go into this in any depth this morning, but uh, our individualistic culture, though I think we're beginning to understand more, uh, doesn't understand shame and honor cultures, which is probably two-thirds of the world. And we even have trouble understanding some passages of Scripture that were written with that as an assumption. And shame in Scripture is not a bad thing, even though our culture has come to think that if you shame anybody, you get pushed outside because we're not allowed to do that. But the problem with shame is not that it's always wrong because the Scripture says God shames. The apostles write to shame us, the Word of God. But it's when shame is used wrongly or when honor is used wrongly because we can honor the wrong things. So honoring someone is very good, but you can lead people astray by honoring them about things that aren't honorable. So there's a lot to learn. Reading the Scripture is a good way. We touched earlier uh, in song on Isaiah 28 in one, or one of the readings. Isaiah 28, 14 six through 16. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Isaiah shaming them. The rulers of Israel in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol... We have an agreement, a covenant. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. How do you like to get that message as the pastor or the session of the church? That's how you're operating. And in Isaiah chapter 30, two chapters later, part of what's being talked about here is their alliances with Egypt who had fast horses and chariot to protect them from the Assyrians and Babylonians in the north. Verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. I remember the first time I read that. Maybe you uh, said, Wait, what, what? What is this about haste? Uh, some other translations, uh, the New American Standard says, you shall not be disturbed. The first NIV, uh, you shall never be dismayed. Uh, the New English translation, I like this rendering, uh, uh, you will not panic. Uh, you know, the enemies aren't going to chase you away where ten chase a thousand because God's judgment is coming. Uh, you're going to find rest and, and deliverance because you're leaning on the Lord. 
And so what we're seeing Peter do here, surprise, surprise, is explain what he already talked about. That when the prophets of old, chapter 1, studied to see what these words about the suffering and subsequent glories regarding Messiah were about, they came to understand that it wasn't about them, but they were serving you who would hear it in the times of the Incarnation and the Apostles, or as someone even in 2021 preaches it and reads it from the pulpit, that things are going to happen. There are glories to come, but there will be suffering. And Peter makes very clear here, by the way, a quick aside, that he's not the rock, but that his faith is in the rock that holds him and other believers as they share with Christ the world's shaming. Because if, if the message of Christ is the message about Christ's shame and suffering and the glories that will follow, if we're being shaped into the image of Christ, in this world there will be tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But there will be difficulty. There will be suffering for those who love the name of Christ. Spiritual exile, shaped by conflicts of shame and honor, the sufferings of Christ, subsequent glories. Um, we've already seen that this cornerstone theme uh, in Peter and the rest of Scripture uh, is all about conflict. Who will be shamed and who will stumble? Who will be honored? Who is in and uh, who will God's cornerstone define as really on the outs? And how do those who are in treat those whom they see as out? Life is all about who's in and who's out. Have you noticed that uh, in North America lately? And in the modern individualist West, shame and shaming have been increasingly seen, I mentioned this in other words a minute ago, uh, a terrible affront to the dignity of most anyone or any group. And yet ironically in North America, and I'm deliberately including Canada, uh, the plantation owner-like elites, media, education leaders, politicos, have quickly adopted the world's shame and honor culture in powerful ways that we're not used to. And sometimes even the church is adopting them because we want to take back America and make things the way they were so that we can shame all those that in every way don't agree with us. Uh, one of the things I don't like about the Scripture, and I'm being a little uh, ironic in saying that, uh, is that it judges everybody. It goes after every group. It shows that the best of us have warped things mixed in and, and that we need to listen. I remind you this morning, and we could do an inductive Bible study to demonstrate that it's true, uh, that shame and honor have never been out from God's vocabulary and perspective. It's the use of them outside of God's reality that is eternally out. But that's another sermon series. The concept is very much a part of 1 Peter. Peter is shepherding his brothers and sisters regarding what happens when you go from an insider to an outsider when you're in exile, and you're shamed for your inappropriate ethnicity or class or group or beliefs for your perceived dishonoring of the values of the current in-group. Given current issues uh, in the U.S. culture, one thing that I know I've learned some over the years and want to keep learning is uh, that we can learn a lot, those of us who are of lighter skin shades uh, from our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ who know more about what it feels like to be out than most of us do. And people who live as semi-outsiders or full outsiders to the majority culture find it not easy. I have a good friend who's just retiring from the mission field uh, uh, who was born in uh, Morocco, Casablanca. 
and uh, his family became Christian. And boy, he could tell you stories of what it's like to be an outsider in Casablanca. A lot of issues. So learning to lean into one's being an insider to the gospel in the only lasting in-group in Christ is great solace and power and endurance for those like many of our African-American brothers and their forebears. Uh, and we could talk of other ethnicities. But they find themselves... Uh, uh, this is really fascinating to me that uh, some of my black brothers and sisters that I've had a chance to talk with, they find themselves in a double dilemma. They were more outside. Thank God it's been changing for decades and decades and, and getting better in many ways. But now the Christian believers are, are in a dual dilemma. They were outsiders in the culture in a lot of subtle and not so subtle ways. But now because they are being shaped into the image of Christ as a living stone and they believe in marriage, they believe in God's view of sexuality, uh, they believe all the wrong things and now they're not even in the in-group that was the out-group that's now in. If you're confused, I am too. It's very difficult. But we can learn a lot from those brothers and sisters and other groups. Uh, and, and it's not, uh, hear this, you know, America is bad, but so is everywhere. I mean, find me a culture that doesn't have insiders and outsiders. Uh, and sometimes kills millions and millions and millions and millions uh, of those outsiders because of all of that, which is why if we fall into the trap of narrow definitions and we choose our dates in history to manipulate rather than to try to give it as honest a perspective of human nature, we're really doing damage, but I need to be careful here. Time is uh, moving. Uh, but isn't it fascinating how uh, Martin Luther King's legacy, junior and senior, though still honored in some ways, is really out in the elite power culture? Because so much of what Martin Luther King dad said and what he said doesn't fit the new elite in culture, who aren't a majority, but they got the biggest megaphones. Don't forget that. And make sure you don't listen just to the megaphones that are the most popular. Living stones make choices bringing honor to God. Spiritual exile is shaped by conflicts of shame and honor. And lastly, uh, choose to honor whom God honors. And then treat those that aren't there in the way that Jesus treated you before you knew him. The last two verses, 7 and 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Don't get lost on destined or predestined. The key question from this passage uh, is not about God's ultimate sovereign choices and his foreknowledge. Those are not in question in the rest of Scripture or, or here. But that's really not what it's about in the way that Peter's pastoring. The Old Testament verses are more of Peter's quoting the Old Testament prophets, setting the stage for what has now been revealed. Are Peter's readers standing on the promises, leaning in on Jesus and obeying in certain hope, and are fearing in positive ways in worship their Father whose grace and mercy are hard to even grasp? And do the care for and fear for the fate of their neighbors, even those who shame and trouble them. Are they, are they fearing? Are we fearing the fate of our neighbors 
who are going to stumble over the, stumble, over the stumbling block? Are we burdened to learn to explain our hope, knowing that those who reject God's only salvation will stumble into judgment? I mean, that ought to concern us. And we've made the gospel so nice that a lot of preachers don't preach much on all the passages on judgment that are in the Scripture. I hope you are catching on this morning that you can't talk about the cornerstone and and just be happy because it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense with eternal consequences. We've already mentioned Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, but as early as Deuteronomy 28, God promised judgment if Israel proved unfaithful. 2849, Deuteronomy, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. You can think of many, but Assyria and Babylon are probably at the center, the exile that Israel first, the northern kingdoms and then the southern kingdoms were led into. In Isaiah 30, God rebukes Israel, I mentioned it, for their fruitless treaties with Egypt, calls them to return and rest in him, not in fleshly covenants. Most of you are at least a little familiar with Acts 2 and the story of Pentecost. Uh, I'm going to summarize so quickly, uh, we'll be gone before you get it all. But it's really important to tie it into this cornerstone issue because Pentecost is a cornerstone passage. What happens? The apostles and those with them are gathered and waiting for what Jesus promised in the beginning of Acts 1. The Holy Spirit falls on them and many begin to speak in other tongues, other languages. And in Jerusalem, Acts tells us there were devout Jews in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. And as they heard this uproar from where the believing Jews were, believing in Jesus, they realized that these largely Galilean disciples of Jesus were speaking the praises of God and His mighty works in the native languages of all the nations of these people that were in Israel. So the tongues in Acts are people speaking the languages of all the visiting devout Jews. And the list is fascinating. Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Cretans, Arabians. You know, anybody who thinks that the first believers were white. Or even that the majority of believers in the world are white. Hasn't read the scripture and doesn't know what's going on in the world. And yet, can every country and culture try to take control of the Scriptures? You bet. And we really mess it up, and we're not being shaped into the image of Jesus, the cornerstone, when we do that. But the final thing I want to say about Pentecost is, in Acts 2.13, the final comment, and it's another Hebraism where uh, less is more, like when we were talking about the narratives with Joseph. Uh, After all these paragraphs, all of a sudden it ends But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Other Jewish people, other visitors, other leaders in Jerusalem explain Pentecost saying they're drunk with new wine. And you remember Peter said, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. And then he goes on to say a lot more. 
And this is where the last passage that I listed in your outline, this and then a final story and we're done, comes into play. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 25. I don't have the time to teach the context there, but Peter, or rather Paul, is talking about tongues. But he's also talking about the cornerstone and Pentecost. Paul says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Ooh, I think he's shaming the Corinthians. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, Israel. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. What's what's Paul saying in explaining to the Corinthians who were so confused about tongues what tongues were about at Pentecost? Pentecost. Listen closely. Paul is saying that Pentecost centered around the coming of the cornerstone, Christ Jesus. Pentecost is the ultimate fulfillment of the earlier judgment on Israel through the tongues of the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Believing Jews heard the Pentecost tongues and heard them as their own languages and understood the meaning. And they rejoiced. Scoffing listeners stumbled over the message of the cornerstone. Scoffing Jews, instead of knowing the praises of God for what He's doing, stayed in their unbelief. And we don't have time to explain the rest of that curse, those First Corinthians verses, but the heart of it is, when believers hear and understand what is prophesied of the cornerstone Jesus, it becomes prophecy. And thus tongues in Pentecost are for believers, those who will believe. But in the normal operating of the church, there's got to be interpretation. And I'm not getting into the message of tongues, so I've got, probably got some of your minds racing. You know, what am I saying? What I'm saying is that the reason Paul tells the Corinthians that prophecy is more important than tongues, the way they were practicing it, unless there's interpretation, whatever that means, that they're not hearing the words of God that can convict them and shape them to be like Jesus. There's got to be understanding, and it affects how they act towards those who want to shame them and make them unworthy outsiders, which is why in that passage, uh, outsiders who happen to visit the church who hear prophecy say, surely if these people of God are so humble, God is among them, because I've never seen people humble themselves like these people are humbling themselves. May that be true in our worship for pastors and elders and deacons and people. May people say, wow, these people want to be shaped like Jesus more than anything else. i got to finish with this. What happens when ears and eyes are open to the hope of the gospel? It can even give words to an 11-year-old exile for Jesus. Maybe there's hope for me. Elliot Clark has a wonderful book called Evangelism as Exiles. may tell you more about it later. And here's what he says when he and his family were living as unofficial missionaries in uh, one of the Muslim countries that uh, is not very open to outsiders of any kind. He writes this. Our family's apartment building sat at the edge of a small city huddled on the skirts, the outskirts of a rolling Asian mountain range. 
On any given evening from our third floor kitchen window, we could watch the orange sun plunge behind the ridge line and spill pinks and purples all over the plateau. One afternoon, as my wife was working in the kitchen, I heard a sudden and sharp gasp. Then, without hesitation, she cried out for me to come, and I hurried to her side, assuming she was hurt. But there from the kitchen window, I found her staring out. I followed her sight line to the silhouette of our 11-year-old son standing on a mound of dirt more than 100 yards away. Across from him was a group of boys, a village troop we both easily recognized, a gang known by the neighborhood as the Rough Uncles. As we squinted into the distance, our eyes locked onto the boy closest to our son. From his body language, we could sense that this was a confrontation. In the village boy's hand was a large rock about the size of a football. We both watched in stunned silence as he cocked his arm and raised the stone in anger over our 11-year-old. I froze. For that brief moment, we felt helpless, hopeless as parents, unsure of what to do, and completely unable to rescue our son. But before we could muster any semblance of a response, the situation was diffused somehow. The boy lowered the rock and our son came hurrying back to the house, his face mixed with concern, shame, and uncertainty. We embraced him and asked what happened. He told us the rough uncles had come upon him without warning. Neighborhood kids usually avoided any contact with them. The group knew he was a foreigner and thus presumed he was a Christian. They asked if he believed Jesus is God's son who died on the cross, which is very offensive to Islam. To which he responded, I told them I wasn't afraid of them. I told them they could kill me, but it didn't matter because I, was, I would just end up in heaven with Jesus. Clark makes the connection immediately to the promise in 1 Peter of indestructible future glory as the inheritance of those who find their life in Christ Jesus. You can learn a lot from that 11-year-old. When you feel shamed, when people try to make you feel an outsider, when they try to shut you out, you can speak the truth, 1 Peter 3.15, and give the reason that hope is within you without going into a long sermon. But the important thing is, is where's your hope? What really counts? Another time I'll tell you about Ed Brandon, who's with the Lord now, that dear friend of ours in Miami who uh, was a prominent businessman and some guys tried to kidnap him. He said he wouldn't get into the car. They said, but we got a gun. He said, but I won't get in your car. And they didn't want to shoot him, and he knew it on an outside street. He was trusting that they wouldn't go wacko. But they were so stunned as he told them the same thing the little boy said. And Ed was probably 70 at the time. Kill me if you want to kill me. If today's the day that I get to be with Jesus, that's fine. What about you? What's going to happen to you? This is not theoretical stuff. This is what happens when the gospel gets into the heart. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to the table. Feed us spiritual food that makes us think and act more like Jesus. Amen.
Would you stand with me for just a moment and let's, with billions of believers around the world, proclaim the Apostles' Creed. Would you say it with me? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. 